Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from our pastor at Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Amen. We're excited to be in the house of the Lord. I'm going to uh, ask you if you would like to be seated. We're going to uh, take a text this morning from the book of Ruth. What a beautiful story. <laughs> the book of Ruth is incredible. And... Um, just something that never gets old to just read about how God's grace can find its way if we'll just open ourselves and allow his presence to, to use us and uses all of us in such a unique way. I'm thankful that the Lord doesn't require of us to be like everyone else, but he can just anoint the gifts, the talents, the abilities that we have and allow us to be just as fruitful in our endeavor for the kingdom of God as anyone else. I've often reminded people that when the Lord used and called Moses, uh, Moses uh, sounded like Moses before he was called, and he sounded like Moses after he was called. <laughs> and, uh, and he just chose him as he was, and, and everyone that he used, the Lord uh, just used them because he saw that incredible gift that they possessed and so there are times that we need those individual characteristics the Lord used John the Baptist a voice in the wilderness people would maybe liken him almost to a madman and uh, eating locusts and wild honey and crying out in the wilderness amen repent ye what what John the Baptist was saying he came out and said turn or burn there was no, there was no middle ground with John the Baptist. He was just, he was just a, a man coming out of the gate. But we find all kind of personalities in the Scripture, and the Lord used them uniquely, each and every one. And so we're going to begin today in the Book of Ruth, chapter three. And just as a warning, we're we're just sort of diving into a story that's already playing. So we're kind of jumping on a moving target this morning, but. Uh, if the Lord will help me, I'll try to go back and help us get connected. We want everybody to feel a part of this. I don't want to be guilty of saying, I know you all know the story, because somebody may not know the story. The book of Ruth 3.11, the Bible says, And now, my daughter, fear not, for I will do to thee all that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. What an incredible way to start out a statement or to start out a conversation fear not don't be afraid because fear comes in many different packages and forms and shapes and sizes and as it's already been stated by brother Daryl Townsend this morning we're we're beginning a new series today for the month of January and in this series we're going to highlight God's faithfulness but we're going to 
be specific in that. God's faithfulness, of course, could be found all throughout the scripture, but we're going to look at four examples in the Old Testament. So over the next few weeks, the next four weeks, we're going to revisit the lives of some faithful patriarchs of faith. And when we do, as we make this journey, various speakers each Sunday morning in our first service, when we do, we're going to be reminded that God faithfully provided for two women of faith. One of them is a subject today, and that is uh, the, 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 the character that we know as Ruth. The second lady in the Old Testament is a lady by the name of Esther. And each of these ladies were filled with many questions and few answers. And we have all found ourselves there inundated with questions, but certainly running, running low on answers. But God was faithful. We're going to consider the story of Jonah as he was sent to Nineveh to preach. And then finally, we're going to we're going to look into the life of Daniel when he simply stood for God during a difficult time. And when Daniel stood for God, God stood for Daniel. Amen. And so we're going to be talking about the faithfulness of the Lord. And so we're going to be reminded that God is no respecter of persons and that what he did for them, he'll do for us. Amen. I am overwhelmed when I think about that the Lord would care for me. Amen, I, I preached a service or so ago, he came to me, and, and I mentioned that, that I'm, I'm overwhelmed when I think that the Lord, he didn't just come to save the world in mass of nameless, faceless individuals, he came to me, he came to me, and I'm personally overwhelmed when I think about that I serve a God that, can, that is concerned about my every need, and if I could put it this way, if it matters to you, it matters to him. You know, sometimes in the lives of children, in, a, in, in the lives of many children, if not most, everything's a crisis, or it can be. And, uh, and, and so an adult could condescendingly look at a child and just say, you need to get over it. It's going to be all right. But we're, we're called on to not be just an adult. In times, we're called on to be a parent. We're, we're called on to care and understand that this is a big deal. This is a big deal to them. And how can we help them get through that? And so we do with the help of the Lord. And so that is how the Lord feels about us. And so we can come to the altar and we can say, I'm back again, Lord. And we can open our arms and our heart and realize that we don't have to come to the altar with shamefacedness. We don't have to come to the altar embarrassed or apologetic. He wants us to come. Amen. He is the healer. He is the one that can do something about the situations in our lives. I want to be sensitive to people around me and to understand uh, that I have a responsibility to recognize the needs in others and realize that the, that the world is filled with such sin and chaos and calamity. And, and if I would just take a moment here to just uh, uh, to in, interject something perhaps. We talk about the Good Samaritan. And the story of the Good Samaritan, the parable, it's not in our lesson today, but just want to just leave this with you, that we, in the, in the story of the Good Samaritan, we find a priest that came by and saw a man that had been beaten and robbed by thieves and left perhaps to die. And he crosses the street and goes his way. And then we find a Levite that also comes and... Uh, they don't want to get involved. And then the Samaritan man who came. And then because of that and his deeds, we call him the good Samaritan. 
And if we're not careful, we can be kind of harsh about the priest and the Levite and things of that nature. But it's very possible, very possible. I leave this with you as just food for thought. That when the priest came along, he had already emptied himself so much until he had nothing to give. And when the Levite came along, they had emptied themselves so much they had nothing left to give. And so I just want to use this admonition to the church today to tell you this, that we cannot afford in this hour to run on empty. We serve a great God. And there's not a person in this house that doesn't have problems and problems aplenty. But we cannot afford to run on empty because you never know when we are going to be that one that's called on to pray, that's called on to give, that's called on. And, and I don't want to look and realize that I have added no oil or anointing to my life. I want to be sensitive to the needs of people around me. Amen. I, I believe that when we are called on to not just have church, but called on to be the church, that we ought to have the resources within us to be the church, to love our neighbors as we, as we love ourselves and recognize opportunities to meet the needs of others. Like Ruth, we can't miss the cue, that prompting to do the right thing. I'm in a room full of honest people today, so I know that you would confess with me that there have been times that the Lord prompted us to do or say something. And we miss the cue. You miss the moment. We wanted to back up and do it again, but it just the atmosphere changed. The door of opportunity was open, and I pray, Lord, help me. I feel always so convicted when those things happen. I pray, Lord, help me to have the courage and the boldness that when I feel that prompting to just step through, just test that water. I want to be there to help some. I want to be there to help someone else. Amen. God help us to do that. The book of Ruth begins with famine and and death, and, and the book of Ruth begins with failure, but there is a shift as we continue to read, as we continue to read this incredible book, and in the end, what started out as famine becomes fullness, and what started out as death becomes life, and what started out as failure becomes blessing, if we can just keep our eyes focused, amen. The narrative reveals that even when we face some of the most difficult circumstances of our life, God demonstrates his care of others. He can use us. Amen. We are indeed instruments in his hands. And so no matter what happens or what decisions we make, I believe that God can intervene. I really do. I'm not saying that God would honor rebellion. That's not what I'm talking about. But in our human frailty, we have the ability to miss those moments and miss those marks. And, and, and we can feel like God is just going to take us back and stand us in the corner perpetually. But that's not true. He wants to, to use us. He wants to, to, for me to turn and give myself to him and, and to try it again, to try it again. The power of God's love can profoundly change a situation. Everything doesn't turn out the way we think it's going to. Amen, it doesn't. It certainly doesn't. The first time I ever was, had the opportunity to preach, I had studied and prepared and studied and prepared and prayed and fasted, and I had enough material to preach four camp meetings in a row. In about three and a half minutes, I was done. I had said all that I could think to say, and please none of you start praying for those days to return. I feel that in your spirit today. Amen. But I'm so thankful that, uh, that I didn't get discouraged and just stop and 
say, I'm not going to ever try this again. God loves us so profoundly that he will give us another opportunity. I've missed moments. I've missed cues. Things didn't turn out like I thought they were going to turn out. But God is God and he is so faithful. The story starts in the days of Judges and it begins with a man by the name of Elimelech. And and, uh, he took his family. They were dealing with famine in Bethlehem. And uh, the, the word Bethlehem means the house of bread. And so the house of bread, they were in Bethlehem, but they were in a time and a season of famine. And so this man took his family and he chose a journey to Moab because he heard there's food in Moab. There is sustenance there. And so uh, there are people, if we're not careful, uh, that would kind of pause right here and criticize him. Why would you leave the house of bread to go to Moab? Why would you leave the house of plenty to go where there is nothing? But if we're going to criticize Elimelech for such things, then we cannot ignore other people in Scripture who did the very same thing. And when, if we're not going to ignore the others in Scripture that did the same thing, then we sure can't leave ourselves out of the equation because there have been times we were in the house of bread and became convinced that we needed something somewhere else. For instance, in the days of Abraham and Sarah, there was a famine, a time of stress and a season of uncertainty. And the Bible says that they went to Egypt. Am I right? They went to Egypt. You know, they, they did come out of Egypt. But can I tell you that when they came out of Egypt, they like the children of Israel later, all of Egypt didn't come out of them. Because you're going to bring something with you in those times. Amen. Elimelech means my God is king. And in those days, in the days of Judges, and you can read this in the book of Judges, the Bible says there was no king in those days. And so every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So everybody became their own conscience and and, uh, let your conscience be your guide. And, And however, Elimelech, his very name means my God is king. And so Elimelech realized and recognized the sovereignty of his God. And since the Israelites were drifting from this time, perhaps Elimelech thought that Moab would be a better place for his family. Maybe despite, maybe despite what I know is true, that I live in the house of bread, maybe, maybe that there is something for me over here. And despite being a good man, or despite what is seemingly a good man, Elimelech's decision provide, proved to be fatal. He would leave his wife, Naomi, with little more than just three grave sites to oversee. If we read the story, you know what I'm talking about. Although life seemed good in Moab for Naomi and, and uh, her two sons soon found wives. And, but Naomi faced the devastation of seeing her husband and her sons lose their lives. So she decided, I'm going to leave Moab and in the hope of maybe I could, I could just go back home. I, I went out one way and I'm coming back a different way. But maybe I can find hope and maybe I can find solace there but she really had few prospects for the future because she was a widow and and because she was a widow and because of the provisions and the law of Moses for widows, maybe she said I could just find something that would help me be sustained. But the goodness and the security of life where she was had faded and her hope for the future was now buried in the tombs with her sons and with her husband and she expressed this despair to her two daughter-in-laws, one by the name of Ruth and the other Orpah. 
Orpah understood the decision. She got it. She understood where they were in life. And uh, she heard the message of her mother-in-law, received the message of her mother-in-law, and she just turned and left. And we know very little about her afterward. However, Ruth decided to stay. And at the time, this decision seemed unwise on many, many levels. Nevertheless, she said, I'm going to remain steadfast. I've made up my mind. This is what I'm going to do. And the, the first chapter of the book of Ruth, verses 16 and 17, if we could summarize those two verses, we can see the confidence with which Ruth spoke and made her decision. She said to her mother-in-law things like this, whether thou goest, I will go. And wherever thou lodgest, that's where I'm going to lodge. And, and, and your people, they're going to be my people. And your God, that's going to be my God. And then she said, and wherever you die, that's where I'm going to die. Now that's a commitment. That's a real commitment. Amen. What a, a, a tremendous relationship between that mother-in-law and that daughter-in-law. It seems clear that she was sold out. And I, but I believe of all of those, uh, of all of those statements of commitment, I believe that that the most revealing one was when Naomi was was when Ruth said, "He," she said, "Your God is going to be my God." She cast her lot with the chosen few. <laughs> Your God is going to be my God, and so because of that, God saw the sincerity of her heart and understood the power of ordered steps. Because Ruth did not miss that cue. She, she was tuned in and she realized, I've got to connect my wagon to this star. This is where I've got to go. And when she did, the Lord put her on a divine trajectory. He set the compass of her soul and spirit because the Lord knew, you know, it was, they're thinking, we just need a little grain. We just need a little bread. We just need something to help us stay alive. But the Lord knew they needed much more and he gave them the desires of their heart. Psalm 37 says, Delight thyself in the Lord and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Amen. I'm, I'm, I know this morning that there are people in this house that have lived long enough to reap the reward of the truth of that scripture. When we delight ourselves in the, in the Lord, the Lord has just helped grant the desires of our heart. I, I pray today that we would recognize the blessings that God has given us. My my, 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 amen. I am not here this morning to uh, underestimate any struggle that someone may have, but I'm gonna tell you that we are so blessed. We are so blessed. And I believe that, I believe that we could agree that we are blessed to the point that at times we have to say, I never thought I would live long enough to see the Lord bless us the way he has blessed us. Amen. Well, everybody could have another car and we could all build a bigger home and you could have fancier clothes. You could have more money in the bank. That's not what I'm talking about. There's always bigger, better, more. But I'm telling you, God has blessed us abundantly, abundantly, abundantly. We serve a great God. Ruth started out. She said, well, I'm just gonna go glean in the field. And this was proper and it was in line with their culture. She said, I'm just gonna try to get enough because always always in the field there's always something left over there's just a little bit and 
and the law made provision that they would be allowed to do that. They could go in behind the, the reapers and they would glean. There will be enough. There will be just enough, but there will be enough that I can live and my mother-in-law can live However, the Lord strategically had a better plan. He said, I'm gonna put somebody in your path. I'm gonna put somebody in your life. Amen. Would you let your mind drift just a little bit right here? Can you think of somebody that God just put in your path? You said, I don't know. This is what I think I need. This would be sufficient. This is what would be good enough. But the Lord had bigger plans. And he said, I'm gonna put somebody in your path and that person in your path, they're gonna open up a whole world to you that you never dreamed possible. Amen. I'm thankful to serve a God that said, if you think this is something, you just wait till I'm through. You wait until I bless it. And when God blesses it, it'll be so much more. The law of Leviticus 23 taught every farmer, you don't reap the corners of your field. You leave those corners alone. You don't pull every fig off the vine. You don't pull every grape off of the vine. You, you, you leave something for the less fortunate. Don't take it all for yourself. And so this alone would have been enough, the law of provision for those less fortunate However, here is a man by the name of Boaz. God had a plan. And he said, I'm gonna put somebody in your path and right now it doesn't even look like it. As a matter of fact, I don't know if we can get into all of this this morning. There's, there, there's, there's, uh, it, he's not really in the direct line to be the one to oversee things, but I'm gonna work on that. But when, when the Lord put Boaz in her path, Boaz was a man of means. He was a man of substance, much like many of you men here today. A man of means. Don't be looking around. I'm talking about you. And he commanded his workers. He said, I know what Leviticus teaches us. I know what the law says. Leave a little in the corners. He said, but... But uh, we've, got some, we've got some ladies here. God's, God's got to do something. And he said, I want you to just, when you're gleaning, I want you to drop a few things on purpose. Right. He said, drop some handfuls. Yeah. Right. Amen. Not, we're not talking about gleaning. Just drop some handfuls. But drop them on purpose. Amen. You can, you can, you can say uh-oh under your breath if it makes you feel better. But just drop some on purpose. Because somebody's come along and they're gonna need that. I don't want them to just try to pull a little bit out of the corner, gather a little bit. He acted the way he acted because he had the, the power and the authority to do that. He had the means to do that. This is no random thing. This is no random, uh, this is no random selection. I believe from the very moment of Boaz's birth, God said, I'm gonna use this man greatly. I'm gonna use him powerfully. That's why when we are dedicating young children uh, to the Lord and we're standing down here at the front of this building, don't just think we're, we're just dedicating some child, a, 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 young, a young boy dressed in blue, a young girl dressed in pink. Don't just think that it's just a child and, and, and it's, it's of no consequence. We never know the divine authority, the divine provision, and the divine, the divine providence that God has for that child. Amen. And so here's this time of threshing, and not to belabor the point, but, but God beautifully orchestrated this meeting between Ruth and Boaz. And Naomi, the mother-in-law, she's instructing Ruth because she knows she's older, she's wiser, she knows the law. And she knows the culture and the custom and she knows how this works. And so 
her mother-in-law, it's just great to have a good mother-in-law. Isn't it, Sister Sarah? Great to have a good mother-in-law. Praise God. You can be seated. Amen. That was free. <laughs> Naomi said, you, you, you go wash and anoint yourself and go to the threshing floor because there God is going to do something divine. Go clean yourself. She followed Naomi's instructions. You see, the harvest season was at a was an especially joyful time for the Jews, and that's and that's ex exactly how the Lord intended it. Deuteronomy sixteen and fifteen says, "The Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thine increase, and in all the works of thy hands." Harvest time was an incredible time. It was a harvest time was payday. Harvest time was Friday for many people. It was the reward for all the labor. And so back then, if you ate, that was because you worked. Most people today live so separated from the source of their daily bread that they don't even recognize all that's involved in producing the food. And so go ahead and, and fix you a bowl of instant mashed potatoes. But it took more than four minutes. Somebody had to buy a farm. Somebody had to buy a tractor. Somebody had to plant the potatoes. Somebody had to, to yield themselves to the, to, the, to the increase and the decline of various markets. Somebody had to subject themselves and risk a lot. But to the end consumer, we just throw a little bit in a bowl, throw it in a microwave and assume, well, that didn't take much. But somebody risked it all. Somebody way down the line risked everything. They invested all that they had. Amen. So sometimes we don't really understand all that's involved in producing our food. And I believe if we did... <laughs> Our prayers may be a little fatter around the dinner table. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the provision. We thank you for the farmer. We thank you, Lord, for the person that, that gave all. We thank you. And so harvesting and, and, and threshing were corporative enterprises. The men of the village, they would take turns using the threshing floor. The threshing floor could be any number of things. Usually it could be in some cases a platform, a raised platform somewhere outside of the village. It was, a, uh, it, it was something that the community had access to. And, and in some cases it may just be a hill where you could take that, that grain out to the hill and, and, uh, and the evening breeze could catch it. They would lay the sheaves there and, and uh, they would separate the grain and the stalks. And in some cases, they would have the oxen to tread over that so that it would break that grain loose from the stalk. Other times, maybe a, a more laborious task of, of beating it. But once the grain was separated, the workers would throw the grain into the air allowing the wind to blow the chaff away or the chaff and the, and the grain would fall to the floor. The grain, there's the money. The grain, there's the investment. There's the, there's the reward. It's not in the stalk. It wasn't in the chaff, but the grain, that was it. It would be carried to the market. But sometimes, sometimes the, the night would catch these men before they were completely through with the threshing. And so when they did, they had to sleep at the threshing floor. 
because I've got to protect my investment. I've worked months to get where I am. I worked hours today to get this grain here and I can't leave this to the thieves and the robbers. And so this is where we find Boaz. Boaz is asleep at the threshing floor, but he's not asleep on the job. I mean, he's just protecting this. He's asleep there. Four times in this chapter, the word feet are mentioned. Chapters three, four, chapter eight, chapter 14. It may seem presumptuous in our culture, but but Ruth was coming to the feet of Boaz. This is very significant. And I know we've got to kind of cross some cultural lines here from then to now and now to then. But Ruth was actually coming to the feet of Boaz to propose marriage. I know in our culture it's more common for the men to propose marriage. But we may ask, why, why didn't Ruth wait? Why didn't she just wait for Boaz? And I think there's maybe more than one reason for that. I think that Boaz may have felt somewhat disadvantaged in this situation. The Bible says in chapter 3, verse number 10, that, that Boaz somewhat explains maybe his, his first impulse. His first impulse is that Ruth was much younger than him. And so he would just assume she would perhaps be wanting to shop in a different market. Amen. Missed a good place to do something right there. <laughs> Maybe he thought, I'm out of the running. I don't stand a chance. And so he kind of dials himself back, presses himself into the shadows of this setting. But I believe the most important reason is found in verse 12. Because here was a law. Here was a cultural barrier. And that is that there was a kinsman nearer than Boaz. And so this nearest kinsman, because Ruth's husband had died, the law said the nearer kinsman would assume the responsibility of her. And so Boaz understood that I, I am an older man and perhaps that could keep me out of the running. But the biggest deal is that there is a kinsman that is nearer than I. Therefore, he was waiting on him to act. Boaz was being a real gentleman he was handling this right. And Ruth had, had, had somewhat forced the issue. And I'm not trying to paint her in a negative or a loose fashion. But, but now, now that this broach has been made, uh, Boaz could approach the kinsman and get him to make a decision. The Bible says that Boaz was asleep when Ruth came into the room where he was. And we should not read anything vulgar into any of this. But... She came into the room where he was asleep and she lay down at his feet. One writer said that, uh, that life can be full of rude awakenings. <laughs> Adam went to sleep and woke up only discovered he was now a married man. <laughs> Enjoy your nap this evening. Jacob went to sleep, woke up. He was married to the wrong woman. Enjoy your nap this afternoon. Boaz woke up at midnight to find a woman laying at his feet. That was an act of proposal. In verse 9, when, when he asked who she was, I think this is so incredible. When Boaz asked the obvious question, who are you? 
She said, my name is Ruth. But she did not say, interestingly enough, Ruth the Moabitess. She said, my name is Ruth. I am the handmaid of Boaz. <laughs> I'm talking about rude awakenings. I am the handmaid of Boaz. That's who I am. She viewed herself differently. She's making a new beginning. You find Ruth named 12 times in this short book, and in five of those references, she is identified, almost half, she is identified as Ruth the Moabitess, or identified as Ruth from Moab. However, this is a new day. And she said, I am the handmaid of Moab. That's who I am. I'm a child of the king. Hallelujah. I'm a child of the king. And the, and, and the Bible says in verse 9 that she asked him to spread his garment over her. This is all outside of the bounds of how and what we understand today in our culture. But this was very significant in scripture. Very significant. Because when someone spread their mantle over a person, it meant that we are claiming that person for our, ourselves. Amen. I will take that. I will take that. Particularly when it comes to marriage. I think it's interesting that the word skirt used here in the King James Version also means wing. So Ruth had come under the wing of God. <laughs> Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you together as a chin to gather her, her chicks? I would have gathered them where? Under his wing, under the wing of the Almighty. The Bible talks about Psalms 91. I'm thankful today that we're under the shadow and the shelter. And here's where Ruth was. Where was, where had Ruth been? Ruth, Ruth had been to an altar of matrimony. She had been a, a young and a new bride. But Ruth had also been to the funeral parlor. She had stood at the tomb. She had stood at the foot of the grave. And, and, and at a young, young age watched her husband uh, in, into eternity. Where am I going to go from here? Where is my mother-in-law going to go from here? I've made some bold proclamations. I've said wherever you go, that's where I'm going. Wherever you live, that's where I'm living. Wherever you die that's wherever I'm, I'm going to die and where whoever your God is that's going to be my God I've made some bold statements and I need God to come through amen God is coming through and Naomi said go and lay wash yourself lay at his feet and when she did amen she got a brand new identity not Ruth from Moab <laughs> but I am the handmaid I am the handmaid of Boaz amen in the response of Boab to of Boaz to Ruth, we see how the Lord responds to us. And, and when we seek to have a deeper relationship with him, he's just that near to pull us into his arms. And so as Boaz spoke to Ruth, God speaks to us from his word today. And Boaz could have refused to have anything to do with her, but but he pronounced a blessing upon her. And I believe this that that the Lord is seeking a close relationship with us. And so we should not be afraid, hesitant to draw nearer to him. As I read this beautiful story again this week, I began to think about the setting and how this all unfolded and how that Boaz was asleep. And so we can safely presume this was night. The sun had set. So she could not see the face of Boaz, but she could certainly hear his voice. And there was something about the tone of that voice. Who are you? It must not have been off-putting. 
It must not have been in the sense or the sound of a rebuke, but he spoke in a way that brought an assurance to her. And that assurance we have is not our feelings of circumstances, but the real assurance we have is in the word of God. Oh, I'm so thankful for the word of God. During one particularly very distressing situation, a man was willing to be transparent enough to write the following statement. He said, I cannot read, I'm so distressed. I cannot even think, I am so distressed. I cannot even pray, I am so distressed. But I can still trust. (laughs) I can still trust. I can still trust. And so we may be somewhat reticent to admit it, but there have been a few times when we've been right there when all we could do was just trust. I'm going to tell you that what I see with my eyes make no sense. What I feel and see all around me is a long way from the promises God made me, but I trust him. I don't even have the strength sometimes to pray about this. We might as well say amen. I don't even have the strength sometimes to just get on my feet and do anything about it, but I care what I can do. I can just sit and say, Lord, I still trust you. I still trust you. I still trust you. Amen. This past Wednesday night, I... I'm not trying to revisit the same dining table, but this past Wednesday night from Acts 27, a very familiar scripture in the midst of the storm, in the midst of everything going wrong, in the midst of chaos, Paul said, fear not, brethren, I believe God. Fear not, I believe God. I don't know how we're gonna get out of this mess, but I trust you, Lord. I don't know, I can't really pray, I really can't think clear, but I still trust you, Lord. Amen. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so here it is, those two words that just seem to set the course of everything. Fear not. That word of assurance that the Lord, that is a word of assurance that the Lord has given to many, many people, not the least of which many that are sitting in this room today. Fear not, fear not. The Lord has used these words when speaking to Abraham in Genesis 15. The Lord used those words when he spoke to Isaiah, when he spoke to Isaac in Genesis 26. He spoke those words to Jacob in Genesis 46 and to Moses and the nation of Israel in Exodus 14. He said this to Joshua in Joshua 8. Fear not, Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles, and to the Jewish remnant that was trying to make their way out in Isaiah 2, or Isaiah 41 rather. Amen, fear not, fear not. To Ezekiel in 3.9, fear not, Ezekiel. To Daniel in Daniel 10, fear not. To Joseph in, in, in Matthew chapter 1 to Zacchaeus in Luke 1 to Mary in Luke 1 again to the shepherds in Luke 2 to Paul in Acts 27 to John in Revelation 1 when you find the Lord he's not ever going to be far away from those words fear not fear not fear not and I want to tell you if you can find him in Genesis and if you can find him in Exodus and if you can find him in Chronicles and if you can find him in Matthew and if you can find him in Mark if you can find him in the New Testament you can find him in your home You can find him in your situation. Hallelujah. You can find, he will be found of us. He will be found of us. If the Lord has ever spoken these words to you, you are in great company. So don't be off put. Don't be offended because we can say along with these spiritual giants, 
what was written in Hebrews 13 and 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Amen. Because we have a redeemer. We have someone that cared enough to place something in our path. So not only did Boaz calm Ruth's fears, but he also made her a promise concerning her future. He said, I'll do whatever you request. Because what God starts, he finishes. And what God does, he does well. And so like Boaz, we must step out and seek to redeem others, to help. The Bible talks about not withholding something from someone else, especially when you have the power and the ability to do it. So why would we withhold a plan of salvation? Why would we withhold our knowledge of the truth? You say, well, you know, I, I don't know enough to be an international evangelist. Well, that may be true, but you may, you may know enough to, to reach somebody right where they are today. Amen. There may be those who appear to be more gifted than we are. And, and you know what? Sometimes they don't just appear to be more gifted. They really are. So gifted. But that doesn't mean that we are disqualified. Because we can't do what they do. And we can't do it as well as they do it. But the Lord called us to minister to those in need. And so I, I close with these words. We must not continue to put the burden on pastors and ministerial leadership and other members of the church, we've got to do our part. It sounds trite, but it's really true. What kind of church would this church be if ever a member were a member like me? If everybody was as faithful as me, if everybody was as loyal as me, if everybody worshiped like me, if everybody praised like me, if everybody had personal study habits and devotion like me, what kind of church would this church be? Amen. Lord, help us today to realize the responsibility is not over there. Responsibility is not on somebody else's shoulders. Help us to feel the weight and the responsibility of this. So that's why as your pastor, I teach you all the time and say, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Amen. We need to feel the weight and the responsibility to say, I want to be here. Amen. Just because you can be gone don't mean you should be gone. I want to be here. Somebody may need my prayer. Somebody may need me to intercede for them. Somebody may need me to stand beside them in the altar. Amen. The most important part of any service, hear me today, is not the singing. It won't be the music. It really even won't be the, the, the preaching. Hear me now. The most important part of any service is the altar. Amen. That's not when we need to disconnect. That's when we need to connect. Amen. We need to walk this way. We need to connect this way. We need to say, Lord, let us reach out. Why? Somebody may need my prayer. They can't pray their own prayer. They need you to help. I'm not talking about just laying your hands on them. I'm talking about they mean just need your presence. They may need the anointing, the authority that will follow you to this altar. Amen. Help us to be a redeemer. Praise God. Amen. Let's stand. <clears throat> Lord, I love you today, and I thank you for the word. Help us, Lord, to be redemptive by nature. Help us to be caring and concerned, Lord. Oh, we love you and we honor you and we bless your holy and your righteous name.
In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.